I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about winter kills. <laughs> Intense. Welcome to the World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. My name is Andras Jones, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Brian Connolly, also a host of this show you are listening to currently. And today, we are going to be digging into the film Winter Kills, which was referenced in the episode we did with Henry Bean, the director of The Believer. He was talking about films that people don't think of as comedies that are comedies, and he mentioned three films based upon Richard Condon novels, one being uh, The Manchurian Candidate, the other being Pritzi's Honor, and the other one being this, Winter Kills. And so uh, I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. Do you think of this film as a comedy, Brian? Definitely. Like, it definitely, when I saw it again for this, I came out of being like, that is definitely a comedy. Like, that's totally supposed to be funny. Which is weird, because the first time I saw it, I didn't really feel that way and now i kind of want to watch the manchurian candidate because i do not think of that movie as being funny at all but now if i look through it <laughs> watch it as a comedy okay fascinating <laughs> be like, huh yeah well uh let's let's cut to one of those darkly comedic scenes in this film and then we'll get into unpacking this movie there might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. This is the contract, Silo Contracts, contracts, contracts. Agreements kept, agreements broken. Papers, papers, papers. Signatures. Your father's a holograph signature on his interlocking companies going back, oh, 30 years. Also those of diplomats, authors, and inventors. Tax deals, foundation deals. Signatures of presidents and sheiks. Signatures to put men away for all decades. Destroy careers, public lives, marriages, estates. Love affairs, letters of passion, indiscretion, and conspiracy acquired by your father's intelligence network. Letters to persuade a man to close the deal or leave a job or sell out on his brother. Dead and necessary to sustain a financial empire. And here, here are the spoken words, Nicholas. Voices. And sounds and visuals, pictures on microfilm, movies, video, marvelous little gadgets that document verbatim all your father's conversations with all his people and his people's conversations with others. From our satellite, we can watch everything. Nasty little wars in Africa, troop movements, ship movements, nuclear tests, the Sinai, the Panama Canal, every little thing to check in investments, bias in or out. Even tonight, while most of our workers sleep, it's goes on. Take, Take a coffee, coffee break, 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 gentlemen. I know where there's a new like to be alone. Information. Black holes of information. Galaxies within galaxies. Multiple expanding universes of information. Aren't you glad you came? I never allowed the family here in this office. Oh, misjudgment. You'll run all this someday. You'll need to know. All this and you couldn't find my brother's killer? I'm so glad you're here. 
I received so few outsiders. Who to trust? Who to trust? All of the nerves, but none of the flesh. End of our social. Why did you come here without an appointment? What do you want? Winter Kills is the pinnacle of the paranoid assassination cinema that flourished in the 1970s. Based on a novel by Richard Condon, who wrote The Manchurian Candidate and Pritzi's Honor, and directed by first-timer William Riker, Winter Kills is a film with nearly as much intrigue, crime, synchronicity, and murder surrounding its production as the JFK assassination it is a veiled take on. The film stars Jeff Bridges as Nick Keegan, the younger, less ambitious brother of U.S. President Timothy Keegan, who was assassinated in Philadelphia on February 22, 1960. The film starts in the early 1970s, when Bridges is called to receive the deathbed confession of a man who claims to have been one of the assassins who shot his brother. This sets Nick off on a hunt for hidden rifles, murdered witnesses, and the machinations of his Mephistophelian father, played by John Houston, whose unhinged servant, John Cerruti, maniacally played by Anthony Perkins, may just rule the world from behind his massive computer. For those fluent in the details of the Kennedy assassination, Winter Kills spends its alternate history with enough parallels to the real story to ground what is clearly intended as a comedy in the nightmarish reality that drove the cynicism and paranoia that is often credited to Watergate, but is more honestly creditable to the political assassinations and cover-ups of the 1960s that paved the way to the escalation of several wars waged by the U.S. military in Vietnam and our covert forces in South America, as well as a domestic war waged by the FBI and CIA against U.S. activists with programs like COINTELPRO and Operation Mockingbird, which would ultimately lead to the devastation of the drug war and mass incarceration in the 1980s and 1990s, cheered on by men like our current president, Joe Biden. They say elections have consequences. So do assassinations. So, if you like your comedies breezy and escapist, then this might not be the one for you. But if you like your comedies caked in blood and steeped in the very real nightmare of existence, well, Winter Kills is going to kill you. <laughs> so... How is the world wrong about this movie? Well, so many ways. First of all, I don't know. I know that some people do see the comedy in it. But I feel like the balance of comedy and reality is off-putting to some people. Uh, not to me. That's, that's, right, that's ground zero for what I enjoy in films. I think people are wrong about history, which makes it hard. Like, this is a a film about debated history. So it's going to be alienating to people who are just like, oh, conspiracy theory, I don't believe it. <laughs> and so I think that's part of where it is. I just think it's the kind of thing. So people talk about the 1970s as this great era of 
paranoid thrillers. And I just don't feel like Winter Kills is included in that list enough. Like I love the parallax view, but I think Winter Kills is a better film. It's a more entertaining film. It's 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 more frightening to me. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to use this as a, a way to take down Parallax View or uh, All the President's Men or any number of of paranoid dramas from the from the 70s, but I just feel like this one should be included and it isn't usually, especially considering how great the cast is. And just how wild the story of the film's production is, which we'll, we'll get into, I'm sure. Um, so, yeah, that's in brief. That's uh, that's <laughs> generally how I feel like the world is wrong about this film. But in an earlier episode, you said you didn't like this film so much. So maybe you can tell me how the world is wrong about this film. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, for me, it's a movie that friends really like. Like people that I know, people that are close to me go crazy for this movie. And I heard about it forever. And then when I finally saw it, I was like, yeah, it's fine. I don't understand why I went crazy for that movie. <laughs> and then, and then uh, I, I didn't think about it again until you brought it up to do it for this uh, show. So I'm excited to hear why people who love it love it so much. Because I I don't quite... Con- There's something about this movie that doesn't quite connect to me. Um but it definitely connects to other people, other people who are just get so, so enthusiastic about this movie and so excited when talking about it. I, I'm curious both about what your friends who love it, love about it. Are these people who are, are generally politically minded and historically no. minded or no, no, not, no. They just kind of describe it as like that movie's so crazy. There's just so many crazy, insane things in it. There's so many weird ideas in that movie like all these oddball moments and just like the tone is all over the place. And it's such a thrilling thing to watch a movie that feels like that. You know, I've, I've heard people compare it to like a Dr. Strange love yeah. or like, um, <clears throat> yeah, they just that kind of like dark humor, uh, mixed with like actual, you know, like occurrences and in, in the world. And yeah, I think that's why people like the people I know who like this don't care about, the parallax view or all the presidents, man, they're not political people. And I think maybe it's the strange, the strange things that happen in this movie and the humor that kind of makes it more exciting to at least the people in my circle. It is a haunting film. I do find there are several moments in it that just give me the creeps in a really good way, but we'll get into that. And then what about you? What is it that you, that doesn't, hit for you um i i don't know i just feel like i'm watching it and it just feels like all the dialogue is exposition so it's one of those movies where it's just all about the story and less about the characters and that's usually a turnoff for me in movies where it's a lot everything that's happening being talked about is moving the plot forward and i kind of like tune out when i watch movies like that (laughs) and then i just feel like there was too much like when it gets into like Anything that's like political conspiracy stuff, I get so confused because there's so many names and it's like, and it's, I just get like by the end or middle of the movie, I'm sort of like, what's going on? I don't really understand. And then I just kind of also kind of shut down with that where I just get so lost in whatever the heck's going on in the movie because I just can't keep track of all the, the names and all the people and what the heck's going on because there's so many twists and turns 
and who can you trust and not trust that I get. Like I have this problem with certain television shows as well. Like Game of Thrones was that way. Whenever it was getting into sort of the intrigue of how it was all working with all the people backstabbing each other, all the secrets. I would just kind of be like, I have no idea what these people are talking about. I'm totally lost. Um, and yeah, I don't know. So I just feel like I, and I've never seen Parallax View or All the President Men, so I'm not really uh, aware of the paranoia thriller. That's not really a thing that I've ever watched. Wow, you know? you're missing out, man. That's the like, best. It's like the best genre <laughs> in the world. Like I guess the closest would be like The Spanish Prisoner is a movie that's sort of like that, I, I guess. Sort of. Uh, I don't know. I, I think that's it's a different kind of thing. But no, no. I seventies paranoid thrillers have a very have a very particular thing. They're both there's a, like a, a cynicism and like there's a a political cynicism and a cultural naivete. It feels <laughs> like like by the time we get to a film like The Spanish Prisoner, thing things are so meta. And I don't know, just the cynicism is throughout all of it. I, I think there's, and maybe there's, maybe it's different going back to it now. Maybe we go back to look th at the Spanish prisoner now and it's like, oh man, that's still, that seems still pretty naive compared to where we are now. <laughs> well, I, I, I put together a little, like a little key. So if you're having trouble with all the details, if you have, have at any point in your life followed the details of the Kennedy assassination, here are some of the details that are changed in the film. So in the film, the President Keegan is President Kennedy, and he was killed on February 22nd, 1960 in Philadelphia instead of November 22nd, 1963 in Dallas. In the film The Winter Kills, <clears throat> he was shot from a studio where they make wigs and hair pieces which in would have been the book depository uh, where Lee Harvey Oswald was supposedly shot Kennedy from. In Winter Kills, there is no Lee Harvey Oswald. There's a Willie Arnold who is killed while in custody by a low-level gangster named Joe Diamond, who's a stand-in for Jack Ruby. And instead of the Warren Commission uh, putting forth a lone gunman theory, it is the Pickering Commission, and there is also a movie star named Ella May Irving, who is probably a stand-in for Marilyn Monroe. So <clears throat> that's just a little key for those who are trying to draw the connections between Winter Kills and the Kennedy assassination. I, I wonder, I, it, I, I think this film would still be a an enjoyable watch if you like thrillers and assassination thrillers and paranoid thrillers, even if you aren't familiar with the Kennedy assassination and the details around it. But I feel like, like most historical dramas or satires, the more you know about the real story, the more you're going to get out of this, uh, this play mm -hmm. on it. So uh, did, were there any other pair? You're, you're somewhat fluent in, JFK assassination uh, history, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think I've. I mean, I was a big fan of JFK when I was a kid. The movie. Um, so you weren't watching this and being like, "What's this about?" <laughs> and my dad had a copy of the Warren Report. <laughs> I don't. I didn't read it, but I flipped through it and was like, 
There's a lot of stuff blacked out in this. This is weird that you would publish a book with things that are just blacked out. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, and I don't know. I just feel like I'm, you know, aware of the whole story and everything. I've seen all the movies and, you know, it's been one of those things. It's like it's always been around my whole life, you know. So, Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. And you live in Texas, law, was, so you are. Uh, you're and I've been to Dell, an unnamed co-conspirator. Been, in <laughs> I've been to the Italian restaurant in Dallas that feels like the place that Jack Ruby would have like hung out in and waited for a phone call. So, <laughs> okay, well let's let's talk a little bit about a little bit about the people who made this who made this film. Uh, it's a, it's it's a lot of talent involved in this film, which is interesting because the director had never directed a feature film before. Which is crazy. So who is William Riker? Where, how does that happen? How do you get to make a movie? If you Is it his own money? How does this work? The story of the making of this film is just nuts. So William Reichert is, he was only, he was mostly a screenwriter before this and a director of short films uh, and documentaries and winter kills came out as a novel in 1974 and then they, they were shooting this by 1977 so somehow he got the rights to this and he was able to assemble this amazing cast which includes not just jeff bridges and John Huston and Anthony Perkins but Eli Wallach and Sterling Hayden and Dorothy Malone and Tashira Mafuni, yeah, <laughs> and Richard Boone and Elizabeth Taylor. It's just crazy. Yeah. One um, yeah. amazing sort of film legend after another joined on to make this film, which was, I assume, still somewhat controversial at the time. And maybe that's just it. It's all people who weren't worried about their careers getting destroyed because you can't destroy. Elizabeth Taylor's career or Tashira Mifune's <laughs> career or John Houston. They're on the back end of their careers. So the the good is already, you know, in the can. I feel Jeff Bridges would be the only one who maybe could have, you know, because he was still sort of. Yeah. Not, not quite the beginning, but like still sort of in that first act, it feels like, of his career. I, and I feel like G- uh, casting Jeff Bridges is great because he's playing a prince and Jeff Bridges is kind of a prince. In Hollywood, he is a second generation and in the same in a similar way, like he has more support for his Hollywood stardom than just your average up and coming Hollywood star. Yeah. Being the son of Lloyd Bridges, the brother of Bo Bridges, you know, just has that sort of institutional support, which, again, is is a, a, a nice parallel for his character yeah. in this film. Very much so. Makes me wonder what Lloyd Bridges thought of <laughs> John Huston in this film. Maybe he thought, I should have played that role. <laughs> Busy making airplane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which at the time, I have to admit, admit I liked, I, I was a bigger fan <laughs> of, of airplane when I was 10 years old. And John Huston in this, this is a, a really... This is a very fruitful time in Houston's career because it seems like he's just he's decided as of the early 70s to really lean into I'm going to be an to being an actor. 
Yeah. In in uh, 68, he's in Candy. In 1970, he's in Myra Breckenridge. And then in 72, <laughs> he plays a role in the film in Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean that he directed. He's in Battle for the Planet of the Apes in 73, Chinatown, which is probably his greatest film role in 1975. And this is about the time when he would have been invited to be in Winter Kills. And Winter Kills took a while to make. So they shot the, they initially started shooting in 1977 and ran out of money, finished shooting it in 1979, and then it came out in 1979. Also, in those years, Houston would have done The Hobbit and The Visitor. And The Visitor is a film. It might be too on the nose for us to do as a uh, world <laughs> that, is wrong about. That is a crazy movie. <laughs> yeah. Such a cra- Highly recommend like, it. It's yeah. A what? What year was the visitor? 1979. Yeah. That movie's, that movie's a wild time. <laughs> the same year this came out and the same year as wise blood came out, which is one of my favorite John Huston films. So I'm just trying to give you the, the picture of the 1970s for John Huston. So those are the films he's acting in. Meanwhile, in the 70s, he directs Fat City in 72, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean in 72. That's a busy year for him. The Macintosh Man in 73, The Man Who Would Be King in 75, and then Love and Bullets in 79 and Wise Blood in 79. So he was... He was definitely making the most of the 1970s. Do you have any thoughts on on John Huston? Well, and it's also interesting that in the 80s, he will make a Richard Condon book into a movie himself with Prizzy's Honor. He directed that one. Have a cookie. So clearly, he there was a connection there. Um, he always plays such a good jerk in these movies. Like, he's just so menacing in his specific way. Like, in this... And especially in Chinatown, there's just something so just like uber masculine and just like terrifying about him that uh, like <laughs> when, when Clint Eastwood played him in what was that movie called? Uh, White Hunter Black Heart. He couldn't even touch mm-hmm. upon the kind of terrifying masculinity that, <laughs> that John Huston admits. Like not even Clint Eastwood could reach the heights that John Huston has. Like just the scene in this movie when he pulls up in the golf cart with like those models <laughs> and he just, and he's just talking about like, yeah, they're playing with, they're playing with my junk or what's the line. He says something about, what do you think? The, what do you think these two girls are doing under this blanket? <laughs> you think they're playing with my nuts? <laughs> like, that is not a thing. My father would ever say to me, thank God. But uh, when John Houston says it, you're like, okay, yeah, that's, that sounds about right. That seems right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I don't think he's, cause he's supposed to be basically Joe Kennedy, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think Joe Kennedy was like this. Well, I don't really know a lot about Joe Kennedy. Was he as gruff and just like crazy masculine as John Easton plays it? Or was he as much a player as <laughs> John Easton was? Like, I, I know very little about Joe Kennedy. I, let's... Let's assume that uh, he was, let's say if he, if he was an average guy for being a very rich, powerful <laughs> man of that time, he probably had someone play with his nuts under a blanket <laughs> at some point. 
Uh, I'll have to ask someone at the Smithsonian or the <laughs> U.S. history books. Uh, <laughs> Aren't you related to the Kennedys? In a weird way through marriage, where it was like, I don't even remember how it is exactly. Um, but it's basically like an aunt through marriage. Her sibling, like brother, is married to a Shriver, like the family that Maria Shriver is a part of. And that that family... Is related to the can. I don't know how the Schreibers are related to the Kennedys, but they are. And so there was a while where I was also related to Arnold Schwarzenegger, but that is no longer the case. But uh, yeah, through that, and there was some wedding that an uncle went to, and everyone was all the people were there. So like I'm I'm like so far removed down the line, whatever. I'm not getting invited to any weddings or birthday parties, but. <laughs> So you're not. There's nobody you can call to get the inside <laughs> details on Joe Kennedy's under blanket activities. No, no. no, One, no. An interesting thing about that scene. So there's an actress in that scene who I was like, I totally recognize her. Is that Patty Darbinville? And it's not. I was trying to figure out who she was. It was actually that's the last film appearance by Candace Rylson. And Candace Rylson, are you familiar with this actress? I don't think so. The name's not familiar. So she, according to Wikipedia, she was the inspiration for Bridget Fonda's character in Jackie Brown. Oh. And she was an actress who was in a bunch of... She was definitely played the pretty girl in a lot of films. So she was in Candy Striped Nurses... She was in Mama's Dirty Girls, Summer School Teachers. She played the art student who comes on to Clint Eastwood in the Iger Sanction. She was she played Candy Wednesday in Hollywood Boulevard. She was in Silent Movie and in Logan's Run. And then this was her last film as one of the one of the ladies playing with his junk under <laughs> his blanket. And uh yeah, so I just thought I, I I figured she she might be uh, in your wheelhouse of people you'd be familiar with. <laughs> no, have you seen any of those films? Oh yeah, I mean I would have to rewatch it again now, kind of looking for her face. But like I've seen, um, Candy Striped Nurses. I've seen she's also in the Iger Sanction. I've seen that. That's I've what s- I just said. You yeah. weren't listening. Yeah, I've seen okay. Holly. <laughs> I've seen Hollywood Boulevard. I've uh, seen Chatterbox. Like so, I've seen a, a Bol- Logan's Run uh silent movie yeah i've I've seen all these movies so now i need to like watch it again and wonder what happened i wonder why she stopped being in the uh, movie mm, probably that experience with john houston was just scared her just like i'm out done. of film i'm uh, done okay let's let's switch to looking at where jeff bridges is when he comes to this because i feel like he's the other really important he's obviously the star of the film and this comes at a, a I don't know, a, a, I think a, an interesting place in his career. It's right after King Kong, which was, I guess, probably his big blockbuster. I mean, he'd already been in a bunch of things. He's great in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. But King Kong was a massive movie. Mm-hmm. And I feel like as a kid, that was the first time I became aware of Jeff Bridges. Hmm. Which also made it, um, it made Jeff Bridges a confusing guy <laughs> for a long time because I always just thought of him as that bearded guy. And then when he shows up later on as sort of this, I don't know, chiseled 
dude in other films, I, you know, just, it didn't, it, it was a, like a little cognitive dissonance. This is also, I was very young at the time. I was <laughs> like when I'm 10, 11, 12 years old. But after this, the, the films that he would show up in would be Cutter's Way mm-hmm. and Heaven's Gate, which I feel like that's when people first started to really be like, oh, Jeff Bridges is a major actor. Before that, he was sort of a movie star young guy. But something, I feel like right around that point, the critical take on Jeff Bridges was that he was, and this was this went on for a long time, that he was one of the most underrated actors in Hollywood. And, and man, his 80s output is so good. Like, I'm a big fan of everything he made after those two movies you mentioned. Like... Yeah, I love I love Tron. I love Against All Odds. Uh, I love Eight Million Ways to Die. I think The Morning After is brilliant. It's just like all those movies. Don't forget Starman. Star, Star oh yeah, Man. Starman is great. Uh, he's just great. was on a roll. Jagged Edge, like he just was a great great actor. Still is a great actor. Like he hasn't stopped being a great actor that all of America loves. Um. <laughs> Now, what if for for people who follow Jeff Bridges' career through that period, you may notice that he's a little bit doughy in this film compared <laughs> to just a year later. Like by Cutter's way, he's like this chiseled specimen of man, and <clears throat> in Winter Kills, he's he's a good looking guy, but he's still like a normal soft body. Yeah, it's that baby fat, maybe, that burned away by 1980. Um. No, because in, like, what was the film? I'm trying to, what was the film? Because he was, when he was young, what was, there's this great film he's in, Halls of Anger from 1970. And I feel like in The Last Picture Show, like, in those movies, he's still, he's, he's a, yeah, he's got the, he takes his shirt off a lot and he looks good. With his shirt off, but uh, yeah, and stay hungry. He did, I think he takes his shirt off and stay hungry, and in Thunder yeah. Golden Lightfoot, he was a handsome man showing it off. Yeah, so I figure <laughs> I just feel like there's something. Maybe I feel like there's something about Winter Kills that it was just kind of a relaxed shoot, and he didn't feel like he had to <laughs> but just get fun. all tanned and buff. <laughs> but there's so, but most of the movies, him running from one end of a room to another, or from one sidewalk to another. Like the movie is a lot of him running around. Like Winter Kills must have maybe that's how he lost the weight by the end. <laughs> is it like I've like other than like Tom Cruise in any movie, this is some of the most like kind of like just sort of moving quickly from around that I've seen an actor do where it's like I gotta go here and I gotta go there and I gotta go across this room and I gotta run out of this house. Just like to add to that paranoia that the movie has. He's just like he's always in motion. And like if we can just pause for a second. This movie has so many little sets that they must have built. Like, it's like they never go back to the same place. It really is like, now I'm in this room, and now I'm in this hotel, now I'm on this estate, and now I'm in this city block. And it's just like there's constantly moving, like, other than his home, like, other than his house where John Houston lives. Like, it's he's always going somewhere new as he's finding new information. And some of the sets look really cheap and really fake, like, especially when they're in Tucson. The scenes in Tucson, they does not seem real at all. But I feel that has to be intentional. That kind of just adds to this uncomfortableness and also this sort of like distrust that you get from watching this movie. That that has to be intentional. That so much of the sets feel like a facade. Um, 
that was just something that I noticed when watching this movie. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the how this film came together. So, again, looking to Wikipedia, the film's original producers were wealthy marijuana dealers Robert <laughs> Sterling and Leonard Goldberg, which maybe explains why all these famous people were in their movies, because they were maybe the hookup for them. <laughs> and they had previously worked on releasing the uh, French softcore Emmanuel films, which you are yep. very familiar with. I am. And... Uh, the pro- uh, reading here, the production's financing was erratic, with it quickly going over budget. The cast and crew reported they began receiving their pay by being called to a hotel room where they were given envelopes of well-used bills. <laughs> Eventually, even that source dried up, and people agreed to continue working on the project for free until union officials heard of this arrangement and shut down the production, forcing it to declare bankruptcy. Hmm. Goldberg... Rob, uh, Le- Leonard Goldberg was murdered, most likely by the mafia, in the middle of the production for failure to pay his debts. And Robert Sterling was later sentenced to 40 years in prison for marijuana smuggling. Damn. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so is this like a money laundering movie? Is this sort of like, uh, is this your after last season? Is this, I think, is this the... That's a lot better. Is a, movie, uh, a lot better. Bit, uh, moving money around movie, but actually making a, a real movie with it. And also just the the parallels of like the mob killing people, even making yeah. this movie. It's like you already have the movie touching on it, touching on the reality of the mob's involvement with JFK assassination. And then in this movie, that's a thing. It's like, don't cross the mob. Don't make them mad. <laughs> They're going to take you out. Just let them just let them do what they need to do and move on with your life. Um, <laughs> How's that for some real seventies paranoia? So then, it, that's not where the it, that's not the end of the weirdness. So then, to to extend the mystery, so when they ran out of the money, uh, the director and Jeff Bridges and Belinda Bauer, who plays the um, the love interest in this film. They all went to Germany and filmed a comedy called The American Success Company, which was released in 1980. And I watched this film. And when it starts, you're like, oh, my God, this is going to be amazing. This this is so weird. You have Ned Beatty doing a, a, a crazy monologue, you know, not quite as the, the quality of what he did in Network. But you just sort of like, OK, well, this is hitting some nice buttons and. It's a strange film and the performances are weird. And about 10 minutes in, you realize that your eyes have glazed over and it's really not a very good movie. <laughs> That's a hard uh, movie to find. I've never yeah. been able to see it. I've, like, I've heard about it in connection to Winter Kills. But that's not one. Like, I don't know if that's ever been released on DVD. I don't think so. I think it's streaming. I, I saw it streaming. I think it's on Amazon. So if you oh, want to okay. put yourself through it, you can go. You can go check it out. <laughs> but they so they they use this again money laundering. I guess they bumped up the budget of the American Success Company and used whatever <laughs> they didn't use for the fi- for that film to finish Winter Kills. And uh, Winter Kills was shot, the, the first section of the film, the, the majority of the film was shot by Vilmos Zygmunt, the, the famed mm-hmm. cinematographer. But the ending, uh, the, the final shoots, and I, I don't know what those scenes were, were shot by uh, a DP named John Bailey. Hmm. 
So all of that gets us to Winter Kills. But there is one other story about William Rickert, which is I found kind of interesting. One, he went on to also direct the River Phoenix film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Night in the Life of Jimmy Reardon, which I think was... Yeah, like one of his first uh, yeah, movies. from 1988. Not quite. I mean, he'd already done... Stand By um, Me, I guess. Stand By things, Me. Yeah. But yeah, that was sort of... That was his I'm a teen star launch. I guess it's weird to say one of his first movies because he wasn't around long enough to make nothing but movies that would be considered one of his first movies. Like his time-making movies was very small, River Phoenix. So... There are two uh, unique pieces of trivia about... William Reichert, I want to share. One is that as an actor, he played Bob Pigeon in My Own Private Idaho. So he played the Falstaff character in Gus Van Zandt's film with Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix. Do you remember that film? I do. It's a great movie. And do you remember that role? But I did not make the connection. <laughs> yeah. It was, that's so I'm guessing it's because he directed... River Phoenix a few years earlier, but it's weird to be like, hey, now you're an actor in this movie. There must have been something. I wonder if like River Phoenix brought that up to like Gus Van Sant be like, you know who'd be great in this part? This this director that I worked with. And like he doesn't act a lot, but <laughs> And I bet Gus Van Sant is a fan of Winter Kills. I can see that. That probably made sense there. And the intrigue grows in uh 1995, William Reichert sued the Writers Guild of America over not being credited on the screenplay of Aaron Sorkin's The American President. Reichert claimed that Sorkin's screenplay was a thinly veiled plagiarism of Reichert's 1981 screenplay, The President Elopes. And after Guild arbitration, Sorkin was awarded full credit on American President and Reichert claims that the television series The West Wing was derived from part of the same screenplay. So here we have mm. our good friend Aaron Sorkin <laughs> once again stealing from... Uh, they, they say that, uh, that we all stand on the shoulders of giants, but not all of us <laughs> cut the heads off those giants and claim to be the giant. <laughs> But that's Aaron Sorkin. Uh, the it's so weird because I really do like his like his films. But I, the more I find out about this guy, the more he seems like a really uh, dastardly figure. But but also in his defense, and this is the only time I'll do this, the plot of West Wing and American President isn't so spectacular that it couldn't have been thought of again by someone else. It's not like such a specific thing that that you can say, oh, that's definitely a ripoff of like, I don't know. Like I'd have to read the original script, but I feel like it's just, you know, like especially the West Wing, it's just like, it's just people in the White House doing stuff. Like a lot of people could say that was a ripped off from them. I don't know. Not a Well, not a lot of, I mean, I couldn't, you couldn't. I mean, I know, but I, I mean, I feel other people have probably written things about just sort of people in government doing a thing and i've never seen the west wing so i don't care but <laughs> it's just william reichert has a website and if you go you can look at the sections of the script and hmm. he he makes a strong case that yeah you could but he says that he got that 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 he has proof that 
Sorkin saw his script. So, hmm. I I tend to I, I tend I don't I don't I, when someone makes this kind of accusation, it seems like. Especially, there's there's not really an upside to making this kind of accusation if you don't have something to back it up. Because what are you gonna, like? What are you going to get? You're going to get a bunch of people in Hollywood mad at you. You're unlikely to succeed if you don't have the power in the room, and <clears throat> and if you can't back it up, you're just going to look like an idiot. And even <laughs> if you do can back it up, people are going to be sort of no offense to you, but saying sort of the same thing of like, well, you know, anyone could have come up with that. But yeah, someone did in 19, in the early 1970s. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's been so many things that Zach and I have written that then like two years later, someone makes the same thing. And there's a part of us who was just like, did they see it? Did someone rip us off? You just, it's just this sad thing of writers are treated so poorly. <laughs> and it's like, it happens all the time. We had a TV series and then someone made the same TV series. And we're like, God damn it. Like, what is it that our ideas are not original enough? Or is it possible that someone looked at it and just thought, well, I'll just do this. Who cares about these losers? Like, they're not famous. We'll just take their script, which I'm sure happens all the time. Like, because Hollywood's a dirty place. <laughs> so, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened just because it happens constantly to everyone I know who tries to make movies and write, like things just get stolen from under them by people who have more power or money. And it's just kind of sad. Yes. Well, and in light of what, what the, the topic, <laughs> the topic of this film, I just feel like all of this <laughs> intrigue and paranoia, like it just, it doesn't end. It doesn't end in 1979 In 1995, <laughs> the conspiracies are still continuing. And it's, and, it, and it's also that it happens in the realm like yeah, it's one thing if you're if you steal a a story about a guy who fell in love with a car and married the car <laughs> or whatever. But there's something about you know that Sorkin's work is so political, which lends it to the you know to the question of is it propaganda or is it entertainment or is it history? And so a film like this, which clearly its take on history is one that questions the official narrative and someone like Aaron Sorkin, who is a big believer in the official narrative. Um, they're, they're at odds creatively, whether or not they're at, at odds in terms of actually stealing the material. They hmm. may, may, yeah. that may that have is, happened. That is fascinating. Yeah. But there's just like the, the idea that just this web of paranoia and conspiracy is like still continues is like, if you're not involved in it, I find there's something that's entertaining about that. And yeah. if you are involved in it, it's probably, it probably sucks. So I think we have talked a lot about, talked a lot around this film. And I think it's good to mention there's a good documentary about all this kind of making of that you can get on the DVD of winter kills called who is it called who killed winter kills is that right yes yeah and that's definitely worth checking out for anyone who just is interested in film history crazy production stories like it's it's a full-length movie yeah it's a i think it's on on youtube and if i can find the link i'll put it in the show notes so people can just click on it and watch it at their leisure okay so 
let's just talk about some of the highlights of this film. What are some of the things in this film that you do love? Well, we talked about the cast and everyone in this movie has their great moment. Like, uh, from the get-go, like when Arthur Fletcher shows up, the person who's all bandaged up, who's kind of opens up, breaks open this whole case, that's Joe Spinell. <laughs> and like I'm watching it being like, I know this voice. Who is that? And it's Joe Spinell in, which is funny because he's such an actor known for his like looking very strange and playing sort of these heavies. And here he is completely bandaged up and laying on his back. And so I found that really fun and exciting. I think the, uh, <laughs> the part where Sterling Hayden is great. And it's not just because like, I definitely feel that scene leans most into it's kind of Dr. Strange loveness, not just because it's Sterling Hayden who was in both movies, but just the satire is so apparent there. And it's so, that part is so funny and strange <laughs> where he's just kind of playing these war games on his property, but with actual tanks and guns and missiles and, and, and just Jeff Bridges trying to, trying to reason with this man and just basically ask some questions, but he can't cause he's having to dodge and run around while this like mini war is going on. I think that part is fantastic. Um, and that very, very bizarre part where Jeff Bridges is fighting with the maid on the balcony and her blouse pops open. <laughs> that part is fairly like, I think this is a comedy. I think when that was happening, it's like, it's like a weird Benny Hill moment going on in the middle of this, uh, you know, paranoid thriller. <laughs> those are, I think those are the highlights for me, those scenes. Well, for me, the film immediately gets exciting right at the front when Richard Boone shows up. He's one of my favorite actors, and I could just watch him in anything. Are you a Are you a Richard Boone fan? I am not really familiar with his work at all. Like I've not, I don't like. I'm trying to think of like what else I would have seen him in that I would have recognized. Like he has definitely a very intense face. But I don't know if I've seen anything that he would have been in. I guess I've seen the tall T. Um, yeah. And th that might be it. <laughs> Never seen Big Jake? No. With, uh, mm -mm. with John Wayne? No. The 1978 Big Sleep? Or The Shootist? No. I've seen the Alamo where he plays General Sam Houston. I've seen that. Um, and he's good in that, even though that movie's terrible. Um, and, uh, he is the voice of Smog, Smaug in the Hobbit cartoon with John Huston. So that I'm very familiar with. So, yeah. Uh, and this is one of his last movies, Winter Kills. It's gotta be up there, right? Cause I don't think he lived that much longer after this film came yeah. out. Well, I have, t I have two stories about Richard Boone. One great, one very sad. The, the great one is that when Elmore Leonard was asked who, as an actor, played his characters the way he saw them, he said Richard Boone was the only one who really felt like the people he writes about. Hmm. And he play, I think uh, Elmore Leonard wrote The Tall T and Ombre. Yeah, that those sounds are, right. Yeah. Uh -huh. Those are the two. And then the other sadder story is that a woman who used to be my agent 
when I was in Hollywood in the late 80s. When she first came out to Hollywood, she told me the story years later. When she first came out to Hollywood and she was working for an agency, she worked for an agency that represented Richard Boone. And Richard Boone was basically just the the people at the agency did not respect his legacy. They kind of just saw him as an old loser. Mm. And she was the one she she had to she tells me the story about how she was like, well, if he's not being represented, we need to let him know. And no one wanted to. And so she was the one who had to talk to him and say, hey, look, you shouldn't be here. They don't, you know, basically, you're over. <laughs> you're over, Rocky. You, 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 you can't battle anymore, which is so sad. It was like the and the story that the way she told it, it was just like this industry is so unjust. We don't recognize who our treasures are. Yeah. And yeah. he was one of the treasures. So so seeing him show up in this film and be such a mysterious and hilarious character. And he's in the movie a lot, too. It's like a pretty yeah. meaty role. Yeah. I actually got the book on tape and was uh, I've been listening to it. And he has a, a much bigger role in the book, too. He he's in. It's sort of alluded to, but the idea is that he was the father. Well, John Huston's character was running around putting his son in the Oval Office it was the Richard Boone character who was actually the father figure to the Jeff Bridges character, mm. which makes the end that much more tragic um, to this film. So for me, I'm immediately like, I'm in. And then the scene where Bridges goes and discovers where the rifle, that the second great. rifle is. Yeah. And there's all this, There's first of all, there's this weird slapstick comedy there's a bumbling police chief. Yep. Yeah. It's all this is where the film fe- starts to feel like, oh, this is a comedy here. This is it's <laughs> almost over the top. And then that tonal shift and one of the 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 creepy haunting things in this film that has never left me and may never leave me is this woman on the bicycle with the baby who in this first scene Drives up to the car, pops her bubble gum, and then we hear this, hear windows crash, and then we cut to Jeff Bridges, and everyone in the car is dead but him. And even before that, the character played by David Spielberg, no relationship to Steven, he's just sort of laughing maniacally at a not very funny joke. And just the laughing, and then the music, and then the bicycle, and the bubble pop, and then the death... I just I can watch there's there's something about that scene I could watch over and over again. I'm definitely going to clip it for the Instagram. There's do you do you get what I'm what I'm talking about? There's something it's horrible but it's also kind of I don't know, <laughs> sweet and pleasing to the to the senses. Like, that's just sort of this whole movie like the tone is so unique because it has these things that are silly and things that are funny and pleasant but then it's about this like very dark true story you know and i don't know if but it works uh but that tone does work and i don't know if it's because like like it is interesting if like why did they decide to make this funny is the book funny like when you listen to it does it play 
as a funny story in book form, or is that something they invented for the movie? Well, it's uh, I don't find it funny in the book form. And when I read about Richard Condon, they talk about humor being a big part of his writing. Hmm. But I, I haven't read uh, many other. I, I feel like there's one other Richard Condon book that I listened to as a book on tape when I was traveling in with a band in the '90s. But, uh, but I still I don't. In, even in that case, I don't think of it as being funny the way this is funny. The, and the humor, so much of the humor in this, I feel like comes from behavior, performance, tone. Like not, not the story. Yeah, but I wonder like why they went that way. <laughs> I wonder whose decision was it? Like, was it William Reichert telling everyone to like, okay, we're going to make this funny, subtly funny, not subtly funny. Or it's sort of like the make the craziness palpable is if you make it funny, it makes it seem like it's just an insane ride, even though everything that it mirrors is stuff that really happened. <laughs> so like it's... I mean, but I, I mean, I feel the same. Like, I feel like that, like when you get wrapped up in such intense Kennedy conspiracy, it kind of is comical in a way because it just seems so crazy. You know, like you just can't happen to laugh, not because it's funny, but just because it's just so insane. You're just sort of like, this is crazy. I'm laughing because I just can't believe all this. Like, it's just so much weird things going on. Like, I even find parts of JFK to funny just because it gets so crazy just like the story whether what, what parts of that are true or not what that stone talks about but like it just gets so like you start to feel loopy because there's just so many things and you just don't know what to trust and you don't know what's real and you don't know what's going on that you can't help but maybe laugh <laughs> and maybe they thought the movie would be good to laugh along through this insane journey that jeff bridges character goes through but not too much but enough to kind of make you feel like it kind of reminds me of like I mean, in a way, like the tone of MASH, of just sort of like, yeah, war is bad, war is insane, and that's why we're just going to laugh through it, because it's like, or else we would all lose our minds. <laughs> if we really thought if we really thought about the truth, we would all lose our minds. <laughs> I think this is different in that in MASH, the characters are laughing through the nightmare. Yeah. In this, nobody is laughing. Nobody yeah. in this film is laughing through it. They, we are laughing, but we're at laughing it. at them. And yeah. the actors, to some degree, are given license to be bigger. And I feel like I, I do feel like that has to be William Reichert because he, he wrote the screenplay, and you have to figure he was the one who gathered this cast. I'm just this is pure conjecture, but with the whole marijuana producer thing going on what i imagine is that somehow william reichert was just that he was a funny raconteur and that he was a guy who could get people like he'd get people stoned and say let me tell you the story i'm gonna want to do about the kennedy assassination <laughs> it's gonna be like dr Strangelove. we're gonna do it really hilarious but it's also gonna be really scary it's by the guy who wrote the manchurian candidate yeah oh my god yeah you know it's just <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Tashira Mafoni is like, I don't understand what you're saying, but this <laughs> who's pot Kennedy? Is so what's good? good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that could very well be. Uh, all signs point it, to that maybe being what happened. Uh, <laughs> it does have. I mean, I think I feel like it does have a stoner 
there is a stoner quality to it, not in the sense that it's like a stoner comedy, but it just it does have that sort of like just slightly askew look at things like I don't know. I I I, I can't quite put my finger on it. Maybe it's just the hazy way it's shot. <laughs> um Yeah. I I feel like that's 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 my that's my hmm. uh hmm. I mean, William Record is still alive. With our with our luck, getting reaching out to people, maybe we'll maybe we'll get him to to get in touch with us, and he can tell us more about how uh, how this all came to be. But let's let's continue through the film. So, so we have this repeat of the assassination. So this is so this happens in the place that would have been Dealey Plaza, but it's in Philadelphia. But in this plaza where the the older brother had been shot. So this is a, we start off with a recreation of the faux Kennedy assassination uh, in in this movie. And then we are introduced to John Cerruti, which I feel like is the other main performance in this film, which is Anthony Perkins. And he's only in it. I feel like he's only in like two or three scenes. Yeah. But man, he is, I think this might be my favorite Anthony Perkins role. He's great in a lot of things, but there's just something really all the Anthony Perkins stuff is on display here. And I don't know. He's just like, you know, he was good when he did psycho, but this is 20 years later and he's even, and he's better. <laughs> so uh, what, what's your, what's your take on the Anthony Perkins role in this film? <laughs> he's He's so good. Like he adds that, kind of perfect sort of oddball energy that he brings like having him be the most powerful man in the world is great (laughs) that it's like tiny little you know skinny anthony perkins just sort of like you're the guy like it's and of course that's who it would be it would be like you seem like a weak weird man and you can behind your computer just control everything and (laughs) just like he just yeah he just kind of feels like a sweaty weirdo (laughs) But in the best way that Anthony Perkins can do that, you know, he's always good at playing these kind of slightly nervous, but, uh, you know, menacing guys. Um, and and you kind of feel sorry for him in a weird way, too. Like he seems <laughs> like even though he's definitely a bad guy here, there's just something just kind of pathetic about him at the same time. And the the scene when Jeff Bridges confronts him is so good. And that is such a great intense moment and it but it's also really funny (laughs) yeah i mean jeff bridges can get to this other there's something he can get to this other level of i don't know crazed trauma and he he hits it in this and in that scene that it's just like you you just i guess that this is how he became that most underrated actor at that time was like, he'd have these flashes in these movies where you'd think, Oh my God, this guy has this other level that, well, that his dad never had. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 I love Lloyd Bridges, but he's never had a scene like that mm-hmm. where someone just seems so raw. And there's a piece of uh, trivia gossip, apocryphal tale around this that supposedly in this scene with Perkins, Jeff Bridges uses this uh, a sap, you know, mm-hmm. like one of those things they yeah. used to like 
knock people out in movies from the 30s and 40s. So Houston gives him that and he uses it on Anthony Perkins and hits his arm. And supposedly the legend is that he actually broke Perkins's arm and they continued to shoot. <laughs> like he didn't realize it was an actual thing that could hurt. He thought it was a yeah. prop. Um, yeah, he thought it was a prop. And I, I've watched this scene many times and I just have a hard time figuring out how that would work. Yeah, like, like the Anthony Perkins wouldn't just be like, oh my God, what did you do? But or is he that invested in his character and the movie? That he's just like, we got to go through with this take. Like before I put a cast on, like even though he just broke my arm. Have you I'm ever broken gonna, a like, bone, Brian? Have I've you ever ne- broken a bone? never in my life. It, it It's not, I don't care. You, you don't just, <laughs> you don't just keep acting. Uh, it doesn't doesn't work like that. And even th- like they have. So the way it's shot. The the hit on he hits him on the arm twice, two different arms. And they're both when, when you hit him, when he hits him, the shot is on Jeff Bridges, not on Anthony Perkins. So. Either. I guess what I guess see it doesn't make sense because they would have if they shot Anthony Perkins part first, then he would have known that it was he would have gone to hit him and and either hit him (laughs) with a real thing or not hit him hit him with a fake thing. And then they would have turned around to do the shot on him when he when he hits him. I guess I just don't I don't understand the logistics of it. I don't see how you could shoot that shoot both of those (laughs) shots and get them in the can if in one of those shots, uh, Jeff Bridges breaks Anthony Perkins' arm and then takes the other arm and hits it again. It, but, but why think, would this rumor exist from this movie that nobody cares about? Why would that be yeah. a thing that someone would say? Like, who started this? Like, was this mentioned in the documentary? Jeff Bridges tells it in the documentary, and I've heard it told many times before. I, hmm. I don't know. You know, it, <laughs> if it's true, it's true. We have now we have now reported on the story being told, but my take on it is it sounds more like something. I don't know that people like to say it makes Anthony Perkins <laughs> sound like he's a great actor, which he is. He doesn't need <laughs> he doesn't need the extra. So, um, Let's see what else. What else? There's, you know, you you said that the whole film is a, is exposition, but I, I just say I don't. I, I I feel like that's not a fair take on the film. As I think about it, like there's, like the the whole love affair with Belinda Bauer, that's all that stuff about him wanting to marry her. That that doesn't. That's not just exposition, and there's all these great little character moments with bridges whether it's with john houston you know and john houston's just bad fathering like Mm -hmm. you were always weird i thought you might be a fag (laughs) Uh, you're a real prize pop like that that doesn't that doesn't move the that doesn't move the the plot forward there's a there's a lot i feel like there's a lot of subtle care uh relationship stuff that's expressed in these scenes true maybe you don't agree but i think so maybe because the movie has so much plot it just feels that way to me when i watch it because it's just like it's a lot of plot happening and it doesn't it doesn't 
and it doesn't pause a lot. So I'm just sort of like trying to keep up with this plot the whole time, you know. And I think that's the intention is like at a certain yeah. point, even uh, even so, like, so I'm I've studied the Kennedy Kennedy assassination a lot, obviously. So I've I, I get a lot of the references, but there is a point in the film where Jeff Bridges has just been run so ragged from one person telling him one phony story to to another person who's telling him a phony story who then turns out to be dead or we thought was dead. Like it's just, it's so confusing. And I think that's the intention of the film is to get us to a place where we are as confused as the character in the midst of this <laughs> very hard to pin down phony story around a true story. Yeah. I think that... It, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I I think it I think it's good. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I just don't like to be made to feel confused because I'm already so confused all the time that I watch yes. movies to feel unconfused. <laughs> Give me a, my dinner with Andre. Give me two guys is eating a dinner and talking. I can figure out what's going on in that movie. <laughs> I don't know. That movie's kind of confusing. <laughs> They get into a lot of, you know, you gotta, you get, you, you never had to re- rewind or stop because you're like, what's going on? Uh, I, I, I need to have a com. I remember the time I watched that uh, for the first time, the person I was with, we just kept stopping it every 15 minutes to talk about what they were talking about and then go back to the movie. That's great. A five hour watch of. Yeah. My great. Andre. <laughs> that was with uh, the screenwriter, John Roberts, who wrote the film, The Sure Thing. Oh, nice. So. He was, thank you, John, for turning me on to uh, My Dinner with Andre. And I like there was a couple of other films in there that, that he really, that were were big for me at the time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so then uh, who else? Oh, let's talk about Eli Wallach in this. He's, he's in it very briefly, but I think his scene is great. He plays the Jack Ruby character. Joe Diamond. Yes. <laughs> and he's in the scene. I think it's with Ralph Meeker. Is that yeah. Ralph Meeker yep. playing? Uh-huh. The scene between the two of them when uh, Meeker tells Eli Wallach that he is the second gunman who's going out. And who's the first gunman? Who's the who's the target? And he says, President Keegan. <laughs> <laughs> Eli Wallach tries to escape from the room and realize that, realizes that he's going to pay back his debt to the mob. In a way that's going to land him in prison for the rest of his life. Um, yeah, he's great in it. Tashira Mifune is—he's. Uh, it's great to see him, but I just—I don't feel like he has a lot to do. Yeah, I agree that like he definitely should have been given more to do. I feel like it's it, that feels like a cameo, and it's an insulting cameo because in the book the character is Chinese the character he plays is Chinese. Yeah. And then he's a great Japanese actor. I think that's where there's a line in it where, uh, Jeff Bridges tells him, you used to always say this. And he's like, that does not sound like something I would say. And <laughs> the, in the, in the documentary, Bridges says that Mufuni just learned all his lines phonetically. He didn't actually speak English. <laughs> wow. So maybe that's part of the reason they didn't give him a lot to do. But it was good seeing him and just seeing his name. I don't know. Just he's one of those actors. I can't like 
he's one of those actors who's just whose name on something gives it a kind of credibility mm-hmm. that maybe maybe John Huston is similar, but it's di- uh, but it's different. I'm trying to think of another actor, like. Maybe Charlton Heston wanted to be that when he got older, but he wasn't really that. I'm trying to think. Like, it, it's it's hard to think of an of an actor who, by just being there, brings so much. I don't know, just heft. I feel like, I feel like there's a like other people like to show Mifune that are sort of like these global uh, people, especially from other countries. They're like, we just know them because like they're, he's the actor that represents like this whole Japanese cinema. So you could right. say like, like a Marcello Mastriani or like Jean-Paul Belmondo, a Max, a, a Max von Sydow, Max von Sydow, you know, yeah. it's just like Max von Sydow in strange brew adds credibility to strange brew. <laughs> You're like, that's a silly movie, but wait a minute. The star of the seventh seals in this movie. I need to give it my full attention. So uh, <laughs> maybe that's. It's just like there's certain stars that just like you, everyone knows because they were in that movie that everyone knows about whether they've seen it or not. I mean, in a way, Anthony Perkins is that way too. Just sort of like everybody knows Anthony Perkins. Everybody knows about Psycho, whether you've seen it or not, and you just add this this thing to it uh, more than other actors can. Um, Orson Welles was like definitely. Orson Welles was like that. Yeah, I I agree. Yeah, what is it? and Elizabeth this? Taylor in this? Yeah, she's another one. Yeah, mm. uh, you just, you just see that and you're like, oh wow. Well, I guess this isn't just some hooligans making a movie. This is like there's real Hollywood royalty, like movie royalty in this. Like she didn't have to be in this movie, but she chose to be in this movie. Uh, yeah, and Robert F. Boyle. <laughs> did you recognize robert f boyle who's robert f boyle ah robert f boyle is a famed art director and production designer who worked on north by northwest and fiddler on the roof and a, a bunch of hitchcock films and he was the production designer on in cold blood and the thomas crown affair and he plays the desk clerk who tells Jeff Bridges that he looks really terrible. I wonder why why is he in this movie? He's not the art because director of this movie. Because they were stoned and having fun. And they were like, <laughs> Robert is a he's a card. Let's have him be the guy. I I feel I feel like that's what's going on with this movie. Is just it's almost like this weird game of telephone of like everyone's having fun on this film. And they're like, oh, we have a chance to do. I'm going to call my friend. He would never do this, but he would do this for us. <laughs> and I. Yeah, I. I don't know. There's a there is a Lebowski. There's a, like a hint of Lebowski hidden in this movie. Uh, the, the seeds of Lebowski are, are, are planted in this film. Yeah, it's like you have Jeff Bridges caught up in a mystery that he's very confused by, and it just keeps getting more confusing, and all these people keep showing up, and they're all played by great actors. That's that's the definition of both those movies. <laughs> so, yeah. like, that's... Yep. Yeah, so uh, let's... Uh, is there anything else in this film that we need to touch on? I have one other point I wanted to make, but uh, is there anything else that you want to highlight about this film? Um, the, the, There's a song in the movie played with a flute 
And the first few notes of it sound like the beginning of the Sloop John B. Every time that it plays in the movie, I'm like, are they going to play Sloop John B, the Beach Boys song? And then it's not. It's another song. But the beginning in my mind is exactly the same, like for the first like four seconds. <laughs> I don't know. It's clearly only something that I've thought of and noticed. But it's <laughs> it's a do, 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 do. What are you feeding us? This cat's dead. What is this? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't picked it out as Sleep John B, but <laughs> but that's how Sleep John B here, starts, so like do 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 do. Yeah, that's a Beach Boy song about a boat or something. I don't know, but uh... <laughs> well, it's an old folk song that the Beach Boys did. Yeah, on their Pet Sounds record. Great yeah. song. Great song. There is a director's cut of this film, huh. which I only learned about this morning while I was doing the research. And so I, I went and it's available on Amazon and it adds it adds a scene at the very end. And it looks like they like it's not it's the, the, the film quality of the last scene is significantly degraded from the rest of the movie. So the way the movie ends the the official release version we go to the answering machine of Belinda Bauer's character who is now deceased and Jeff Bridges I don't know if it's in the in the official one if Jeff Bridges calls the calls it and leaves a message I feel like it ends just with the playing her message which also plays at the beginning mm-hmm. but in the director's cut we listen to Jeff Bridges say, hey, I just wanted to call and hear your voice one last time. And then it shows him out walking in Central Park and the lady on the bicycle with the kid rides up past him and gives him a wink and then rides away. Hmm. Obviously, the director felt strongly enough about that ending that he was willing to go back, recut it, and put this very grainy, degraded footage in there I think because he just I, I I get it. There's some that that woman on the bicycle with the baby and the bubble gum. She really is what the film should end on. So I get the feeling. But mm-hmm. also, if you watch it, it's a little bit disappointing because it seems so. It, it because of the, the quality of the film, it seems really tacked on. Mm. But <clears throat> if you read about this, there being a director's cut, that's what's there in the director's cut. Not a lot, hmm. not a lot else. And the other thing I just wanted to talk about, and I kind of referenced this in my opening, but while I was preparing for this, I was uh, staying with my girlfriend at a, a place that had TCM and they were showing the film, the hospital mm-hmm. with, uh, with George C. Scott. And uh, really that's a, deeply wonderfully cynical film and the person who came on tcm after after was saying well this was a patty chayefsky script and he would later go on to write network 
which really spoke to the cynicism of the 70s that set in after Watergate. And that's just sort of like this accepted wisdom, sort of facile comment that gets used to describe the cynicism of the 70s. And sort of just much like with this film, like this film came out in 1979, but the book was made in 1970, was published in 1974, and they were making it all throughout the 70s to try and pinpoint one event that leads a whole nation to being cynical about politics is one of those things that just makes my head explode. Because if well, you understand <laughs> history, you know that Watergate was not like a, a an isolated event that was not connected to all of the history, no. the Cold War history leading uh, up to it and all of the history that came out afterwards. So. Yeah, to me, to me, like I mean, this was all before my time because I'm a kid of the '80s. I wasn't around in the '70s, uh, but to me, I always kind of thought of Watergate being sort of like the final straw for people. Like that was the end of it. That people were already cynical before then and were just so sick of all these things constantly being screwed with for the government, and that was sort of like the end of it for people. And that like you can't come out of the '60s and not be cynical about politics and government, you know. Like, you were already that way in 1970. You were already that way in 1969. Like, <laughs> so it's just, it is weird when people, I mean, I don't know if it's just younger people, when they're just like, oh, the 70s movies are this way because of Watergate. It's like, no, well, Vietnam War was well before Watergate. Like, <laughs> all these assassinations of all these leaders, like Malcolm X and MLK and Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy, like, that was all pre-70. Like, people were, all, like, hippies were a jaded people like they were upset by things like they chose to talk about love and peace but it's because they were so upset and and up of what was going on in america well before watergate <laughs> like like easy rider was made before watergate like that's it's that is a very strange thing to say i mean nixon didn't resign till what 74 like that's the middle of the 70s so mm -hmm. I just feel it's just that is definitely a silly thing to say. I feel it's kind of an ignorant thing to say that that's why all these things. I mean, definitely there's things that exist because of Watergate. Like I think people, I think maybe some of the paranoid thrillers came out of that for sure. But I think the cynicism. Well, all the, the president's men, yeah. definitely. Well, yeah, <laughs> like that only exists because of Watergate. It's about Watergate. But like. Yeah, I think to say that that's why these movies are cynical or that's why you have this distrust in government and movies is not just because of Watergate. That was sort of like, to me, like the end of it, uh, the end of like a, you know, a 14 years of people troubled by things. Yeah, it does really make you wonder what would have happened if I would love to know what Will, uh, what William Rickert would have done or William Reichert would have done with um, with the American president. Or like if you had given him a TV show to make about the... It would definitely be cynical, which is not what West Wing or anything Aaron Sorkin makes is like. <laughs> so, this... Yeah, I wouldn't give you those happy, happy, happy America feelings. No, that, no, it would definitely you know, be... I mean, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin shared with him. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but who knows? I mean, but people also change. People are like start cynical sometimes and become... You know, they outgrow it or they become rich or who knows what, you know, people are, everyone changes. So who knows from 1977 to 1985, if it had changed for him, if, if his, like his, yeah, if the whole script is available, it'd be fascinating to look through to see kind of what the tone is like.
of his version of that story. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne, to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Do you call yourself a music fan? Are you the one making the playlist for all the parties? Then you've got to listen to the Pinch Music Podcast where we interview musicians, engineers, producers, and music lovers of all types. We even put together playlists for any and all occasions. So if you want to have the Beatles vs. Stones debate, pick up some engineering tips, or just discover a new artist, you got to check out the Pinch Music Podcast, all a part of the Paperhouse Network. Dear Listener, If you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Eight notes, scale an octave. Master the scale... And you master the score. Well, that was a pretty happy little guilt fast <laughs> episode, right, Brian? What's there to feel guilty about from this movie? You weren't a, you weren't a part of this conspiracy. You weren't there, or were you? <laughs> We're all complicit. We're all complicit. I mean, that's so. As far as guilt fest fair, this probably isn't as on hasn't been as on the nose as Thunderheart and Incident at Oglala. But I do think that it, it could become sort of a guilt fast tradition that every uh, third <laughs> week in November, we do an episode about the American nightmare in some form or another. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good tradition. And the nightmare continues. So, hey, we'll never run out. It's great. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you think you think that current events are crappy? Well, they are just the fodder for great guilt fast movies of the future. Uh, so uh, speaking of nightmares, there's a, I've, I've been having a few nightmares about <clears throat> some things I need to correct from the last episode. Okay. If you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, the first one is for you, Brian. Uh, uh, I need to correct. <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> I, I need to correct you. Uh, there, uh, you used a word that doesn't exist. What word was I you, say? You put you put two words together, and I like this word. I think you should. I think someone should put it into a song, use it in poetry. Okay. You said palpable. <laughs> okay. I was speaking too palatable too and palpable, and you said it makes it more palpable, and I was like, you know, I like it. It's it's a pleasing. That's for the kids. It's for the kids on their phones when they make up the new words. I just want to be like them. I just want to be cool. <laughs> 
You know what it reminded me of? What? You remember the you remember the theme song for the Puyallup Fair? Oh yeah. Yeah. You can do it at a trot, you can do it at a gallop, you can do it real slow so your heart won't palpitate. Don't be late. <laughs> do the Puyallup. And palpitable and palpitate are it's a it's almost it almost works. So it's not it's not that you got it wrong. You just used the Puyallup dialect. Uh, but <laughs> For listeners who aren't familiar with that dialect, they may it may have it may have been jarring to the ear. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> all, all, also, in the in my intro, I said that Winter Kills probably has just as many as uh, that has as many murders were involved in the making of Winter Kills as in the JFK assassination. If it's not obvious, that was an exaggeration. <laughs> There were many deaths associated with with uh, the JFK assassination, including two very prominent ones. And there's only one that we're that we're aware of involved in, around Winter Kills. So, yeah. Just, <laughs> I, I, when I heard that, I hate when people say and literally, and it's something that is literally not true. Uh, so I didn't say literally, but still it felt like that. <laughs> and then we, we talked a lot about this, the score, but we didn't mention who composed the score. And that is the great composer, Maurice Jarre. Yes. So yeah. needed to give uh, a little love to that. And then the, the other thing I was thinking about, I was thinking about it because we talked a little bit about how Jeff Bridges' character in this film is like the, Lebow- is like the Big Lebowski. <laughs> yeah. I was also thinking about so I, I watched some video of I watched the 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 making of documentary and William Rickard is in it and he kind of reminds me of Jeff Dowd and Jeff Dowd is the guy who the Big Lebowski was based on he was a he was a guest on the Radio 8 Ball show with the songwriter Louise Goffin mm-hmm. uh few years a few years back and he kind of reminds me like the two of them remind me of each other huh. so okay. I, don't, I don't know there there's just a even more of a Lebowski connection in there <laughs> who knows maybe William Rickert was actually the inspiration for the big Lebowski and uh, I don't know what how Jeff Dowd got in there anyway those are my corrections uh, if do you have any apologies or corrections to make Brian <laughs> Is there anything you've been agonizing over since uh, we recorded that episode? No. <laughs> Good for you. Lucky you. Lucky you. There's now uh, now okay. I now I'm thinking of all the other times I've said palpable in the last week that I need to uh rectify. <laughs> do you say is it I, I just figured it was like you were speaking fast. You sometimes you no, do I, that. You get a you I get, get ex- excited and I, you put a yeah. Well, I, ha- I also have the porky pig problem where I can't think of words that I know. So I'll just like, I'll like kind of stutter on it and then say like a, a simpler version of that word. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, sometimes I, I, I said, oh, there was another, like, I make up words all the time. It drives that crazy. I'm trying to, there was another one that I said recently. I can't remember what it was where he's like, that's not a word, Brian. And I'm like, oh, but it seems like it should be. It isn't that, isn't that how words start? Doesn't someone just start saying something and then it, catches on i mean <laughs> isn't that how language is always moving forward <laughs> well i think that in order for that like there's a, we could get into it but in order for that to work you wouldn't like there's already a word for palatable and like palpable would be referring to like you know it's like 
here's the thing is like if you saw someone who was really attractive and you're like, whoo boy, she's palpable. It's like, oh, my heart. She's making my heart palpitate. She's getting, she's getting me all, or she's getting me all palpitable. Ooh, ooh, you know, then you, you start using that and it, if it takes off. But if it's just, you keep saying what you, when you mean to say palpable and, or palatable and yeah. you say palpable, then people are going to be confused because they're going to be like, do we need to get this guy like some help, some, some aspirin because his heart, he's having a heart attack or. My yeah. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Well, well. Uh, what? Let's see. Coming up uh, next week, we are going to be looking at the film Don Juan DeMarco with Ooh. the November Man himself, Paul Williams, not the songwriter, not <laughs> the architect, not the rock critic. No, the other Paul Williams talking about the. 1994 film Don Juan DeMarco. Exciting. You didn't know the world was wrong about it, but that's but you were wrong because the world is wrong about it. And if you'd like to track down uh, Brian's other podcast, it is The Director's Wall, where he and AJ Gonzalez talk about uh, the all the films in any in a given filmmaker's filmography. They're currently looking at the work of Francis Ford Coppola and revisiting briefly the work of last season's featured director, which is M. Night Shyamalan. Been looking yeah. at the film Old. Yeah. And uh, by now, that episode will definitely be out. Yep. And maybe you'll be on to the next one. Yeah. Which I believe is... Tucker, the, again. The, finally. You've been promising it for... For a year. Six months. So <laughs> don't, don't get your hopes up, people. If it's there, you just feel like you're lucky and i shouldn't i'm not one to talk i haven't put out any new episodes of radio eight ball but there's like five hundred thousand of them there no there's like there's oh there's 600 and almost 70 wow episodes on the feed so you can go and check that out at uh, any place you find your podcasts or at radio eight ball.com all one word with the number eight in the middle and you can find us at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. That's our website. You can write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. And you can find us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast and on Twitter at worldiswrongpod. And I think that's that's about that's about that. Now, uh, I did mention... That it's guilt fast. Uh, just if you if you if you're new to the show, you haven't followed, uh, you weren't listening when we did the episode on Thunderheart and Incident of Galala. This is what I do every uh, Thanksgiving and the day before, from the night before Thanksgiving, sundown the night before to sundown the night of. I fast as a way of being present to the uh, the history of this nation and the and maybe as a sense of. Uh, apology before then going and eating after sundown and breaking my fast and being thankful. And if you'd like to do the same, nobody's stopping you. Uh, more food for everyone else, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I know that's not how you do it, Brian. Do you have any uh, guilt fast slash Thanksgiving wishes you'd like to send out to our, to our listeners? Just it's, you know, it was another weird year and I'm just thankful that we're all still here. And uh, yeah, no, it's, and, and 
I'm excited that we, we've made it to another Thanksgiving slash guilt fast. You know, and we can be thankful to the, it's okay to be thankful on guilt fast. We're, we're thankful for the listeners who have, who have followed us and, 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 you know, send us nice texts or emails or different things. And we hope you enjoy these movies. We, we uh, are directing you towards that. So uh, if you want to be thankful to us, you know, don't be so quiet about it. Send us a, send us an email. Let us know. You know, uh, that did you hear the guilt fast coming out of me? <laughs> like, <laughs> for a I was trying to make it a nice positive thing, but I just couldn't. And you know why, Brian? Why? Because wherever you are, the world is wrong, and it's probably wrong about you. You, you remember us in Atlantic City? Maybe, maybe not. But I got a contract for you. One of the biggest contracts ever handed out anywhere. Me? I'm a restaurant man. You're also a thief who was crazy enough to steal from Moe and Sam and Morris and Uncle Louie. I want to pay back. <laughs> you are fucking right. I, I can pay back? When you handle this hit, you'll be paying back. A hit? Why me? There must be 200 mechanics around here who can make any hit. Better than me. I told them. No good. Those guys aren't political. I'm political? You were in Cuba. Very good friends with a certain minister. I thought about you a lot, Game Boy. You have a commie background in the FBI files. Commie? I was out of Cuba ten years before Castro. Joe, what do you want from me? You were in Cuba. Oh, this is crazy. Anyways, you gotta make the hit. Who's the contract? There are two. We've already taken care of the first one. You make the second hit. A kid named Willie Arnold. I don't know him. And, and who's the first? President Keegan. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe by Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.